This is That Progressive Christian Podcast with a light on and possibly a squirrel in the attic originating from that mid-century Cape Cod down the street. You know the one, just before or after, depending on your hermeneutic, that place where the sidewalk ends. First-time listeners, a special welcome. Returning offenders, thank you for your fellowship. A special shout-out again to Tracy, who supports this podcast via Anchor FM. We left off last time with a closer look at this business of Abraham, Sarah, and Pharaoh, and we ended the show considering a 2019 piece by Karen Gonzalez called Trafficking Sarah. Go ahead and listen to that episode if you missed it. It will only cost you 15 minutes, which, admittedly, is one of our longer runtimes. The episode immediately before that is bonus episode two, Kevin Max is Just Being Honest. We went off the script with that one, but I think it's strong because of it. Some folks have reached out to say it was meaningful to them, and for that I am very glad and very grateful. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to subscribe to the show through your platform of preference, and thanks again for listening. As for today, I would love, 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 love to get away from the Abraham narrative, but there are a few sketchy, sketchy things with which we have yet to wrestle. The narrative lectionary, which we're basically following, moves from Genesis 12 and Abraham right to Genesis 22 and the story of Jacob, speaking of wrestling, and Joseph, Abraham's grandson and great-grandson, respectively. We'll make that jump soon enough, but for now... Let's take a look at the spaces in between, where the sprockets are wet and so are the toads. Chapter 13 finds Abraham and his nephew Lot in possession of lots and lots of stuff. At least part of the loot, of course, comes from the fact that Abraham had, according to Karen Gonzalez's way of looking at the story, basically trafficked Sarah, his wife, who was also his half-sister. We know that when Pharaoh expelled Abraham and his family from the Egyptian court, uh, that he sent a lot of things packing with them. Lot and Abraham decide then to part ways to avoid a competition for resources, and Abraham moves into Canaan while Lot lived among the cities in the plains near Sodom. Chapter 14 is the war I mentioned last time, which could be read as casting Abraham the patriarch as something like Abraham the king, or Abraham the proto-king of Israel. Check out that last episode for more about why that might be important. In case these alliances and wars against various kings described in that chapter weren't enough, Abraham is basically anointed as king, or as a type of king, by Melchizedek, king of Salem, who is also high priest of El Elyon, which means God Most High. We could certainly have a whole episode questioning whether or not El Elyon is just another name for Yahweh in this text, or if Melchizedek was understood at one point or another to be worshiping a different god. However, Abraham clarifies the situation uh, and doesn't repeat the name El Elyon without preceding it with the name Yahweh. So Melchizedek is high priest of God Most High, El Elyon, and when Abraham basically receives the blessing that Melchizedek gives him, Abraham makes sure to call this God Yahweh, El Elyon, so Yahweh, the Most High God. Melchizedek himself is an enigmatic figure, deserving of his own bonus episode, 
so I won't say too much more about him here. Now in chapter 15, the word of God, and remember that's the word of Yahweh, comes to Abraham, and God, Yahweh, says, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. After that, Abraham, still called Abram here, complains about his lack of worthy heirs. Abram says, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now remember, anytime I'm saying the Lord, unless I say otherwise, the text really is the name Yahweh. So getting back into the text, picking up halfway through verse 6 of chapter 15, it begins, Then he said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans, or if you like, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord El, in this case, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Question mark. Now I wonder if, that's verse 8, I do wonder if this is a different part of the story, in other words, a different, I should say, a different source, because for whatever reason, Yahweh is declaring himself as the Lord Yahweh, using that word Yahweh, who brought Abraham out of Ur, and then Abraham responds, O Lord God, and the word there is not Adonai or Yahweh, but it's the word God, which would usually be El. So this maybe is a trace of the Abraham story that is not from the Yahwist source. Not sure why that would be inserted here, but it's something to think about. So Abraham says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it, it being the land? And then chapter, or verse 9 rather, God says, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Verse 10, he brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's the end of verse 20. So a lot going on here. First and foremost, we have Abram 
basically saying to God, why haven't you given me an heir? Woe is me. I'm going to have to give all of my rich stuff to this man who was born a slave in my household. And Yahweh, at this point, in this Iron Age motif, does not say, hey, by the way, you shouldn't have slaves. <laughs> Even Paul doesn't seem to go that far, although Paul will say there is no difference between slave and free, but that's a story for another day. Anyway, the writer here, the J source, is showing Yahweh in sort of very uh, human terms. Um, Yahweh is not interested at this point in freedom for the slaves. Now, it could be that the better interpretation of that word slave is what the NIV has, which is the word servant, but the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, is usually, in my experience, the better translation in general, and they have it as slave. We could do a deep anthropo anthropological dive, I suppose, to parse out that word. But in either case, Abram is not happy about the fact that he's going to be leaving all of his things, all of his possessions, and all of his power uh, to this servant slash slave. And Yahweh doesn't say anything like, hey, you know, adopt this man into your family. My covenant is doesn't, doesn't respect bloodlines or borders. No, Yahweh says, listen, Abram, don't worry about it. I am your shield and your strength. I will provide what I said I will. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. And then it says, Abram believed Yahweh, and Yahweh reckoned it to him as righteousness. I suppose what's being reckoned here is, is the faith or the trust that Abraham is putting in the word of Yahweh. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul will pick up in his writings thousands of years later, um, well, actually, we don't know quite how long later, but in the first century of the Common Era, the Apostle Paul will talk about the fact that it was Abram's faith that God was crediting, crediting to him as righteousness. And he will use that in his letter to the Galatians to remind the people in that early church that they are not delivered by their works, but like Abram, they are delivered by their faith, and it, all those who are delivered by faith are true heirs of Abram, which is an interesting parallel uh, to this consideration that Abram has about having a rightful heir. In Paul's economy, oh, I thought my dogs were outside. Hold on one second. In Paul's economy, of course, Sorry about that. This is the Progressive Christian Podcast with one inherited purebred beagle who only barks when his sister, a rescued German Shepherd mix, barks. And the German Shepherd mix only barks when things go by, which is all the time. But I think we're back on course now. And so speaking of adoption, um, in Paul's economy, right, Paul says, you're a child of Abraham, not through a bloodline or through your commitment to circumcision or to the circumstances of your birth, nationality, ethnicity, language. You are an offspring, an heir of Abram um, by your faith, because it was, by, it was faith that was credited to Abram as righteousness. And so 
Paul uses that to tell the early Galatian church, which was made up of non-Jewish Christians, right, of people who had been Gentile or who were Gentile, um, that this promise of faith in Christ is for them just as much as it is for anybody else. At that time, there was a, another party of uh, Christians who who came from the Jewish tradition, obviously. Um, and they, unlike some of the other Jewish Christians, were really concerned that the Galatians or other Gentiles would first observe uh, fidelity to the covenant of Abraham by being circumcised, and we can suppose by observing other parts of the law. And Paul says, no, you know, that was not their deal. Um, let's not keep them from a relationship with Christ, because in Christ all are one, in Christ and in faith in Christ all are true heirs of Abraham. Um, that's interesting because in this very chapter that Paul alludes to, Abram wants nothing to do with the possibility that someone not of his own issue could in fact be his literal heir. So it's sort of an interesting move by Paul. Maybe it's subversive, maybe it's, well, maybe it's like something we would do here at Worst Church Ever. So that's one thing that is interesting in this text. And then what happens is, what happens next is of course, Abraham is put into this deep sleep uh, but before that happens, he gathers up these sacrificial uh, animals. And there's all kinds of speculation about what this symbolizes. Each of the animals that are listed here, heifer, female goat, ram, turtle dove, young pigeon, they're all uh, animals that were considered sacrificially acceptable. And so if we're looking at this text as a, as a redaction or as a... Um, as a synthesis of later traditions, we see that each of these animals... Oh my goodness, that's the warning sign. What's going on here? Hold on one second. Okay, so not only are we the worst church ever, not only are we the worst progressive Christian podcast in the world, but so too are we the progressive Christian podcast with squirrels in the attic, dogs, Barking in the background, and we are the podcast that forgets to mute the outro track on Garage Band. Do you guys know that song by The Clash, Garage Band, and we come from Garage Land? It's a great one. Anyway, Abraham credited his righteousness, his faith. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. The sacrifice. So the animals that are sacrificed here are certainly, if you were looking back, if we think there's a priestly source here redacting some of this stuff or or shaping it, clearly these animals are ritually clean animals appropriate for sacrifice. So there's that piece, and we're not quite sure much beyond that. You know, we don't know when this section of the narrative was written. Was it inserted later when the priests were potentially sort of wrapping up the synthesis of the disparate sources um, or not, we don't know. But it's interesting that they are, they are cut in pieces. And as the narrative goes on, Yahweh appears in flame and in smoke um, and passes through these cut up pieces of animal, and that's the sign or the seal of the covenant because Abraham says to God, to Yahweh, How do I know that you're going to do this thing that you say you're going to do? And so Yahweh says, Let's make it official. So Abraham cuts the pieces, Yahweh passes through them. Now, there are different interpretations as to what this symbolizes and what this means. 
When I was in college, uh, I was taking a, a course in the Bible as literature. One of the things we were taught, and it was at a secular school, it's not wasn't a Christian school, um, but we were taught that it's very likely that this act had antecedents or contemporary examples in other cultures, and that it was a uh, basically a covenant, not a covenant, basically a treaty. It was basically the way different parties would ratify a treaty, and the idea being that just as these animals are torn asunder, so too will either of the parties be if either of the parties fails to live up to the terms of the treaty or of the covenant. So if Abram fails, he'll be like these animals. If if the other party fails, that person or that party will be like these animals. Now, it's interesting to think about God, Yahweh, um, binding God's self to this sort of covenant saying, if I fail to live up to my end of the deal, I will be torn asunder and sacrificed just like these animals. That's especially interesting when you consider Christological developments that will come later. It's especially interesting if you have a view of the crucifixion of Jesus that goes off the page a bit from the typical evangelical understanding or even the typical mainline understanding. Um, more about that later, I suppose. But this idea of God being subject to, to self-sacrifice if God fails to live up to the terms of the covenant is certainly an interesting one. One of the other things that is interesting about this particular explanation or chronicling of the sealing of the deal of the covenant between Yahweh and Abraham, and by extension with Abraham's offspring, is that unlike other treaties or other ratifications of covenant, when both parties would pass through the quartered or the or the bisected pieces of these animals, only Yahweh passes through. And that brings up the whole question of conditionality and is Yahweh indeed taking upon Yahweh's self both sides of faithfulness. In other words, knowing full well that Abram as a human being and Abram's offspring, no matter what, no matter who they might be, uh, are fallible people who were always going to fail to live up to all the terms of the deal and who are going to fail to live up to this idea of having a faith that's credited to them as righteousness. In other words, trust in Yahweh for provision. Is the author trying to show us that Yahweh is committed from the start to seeing both sides of this covenant through. And again, that has Christological ramifications uh, in the way that Christians certainly think about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be, to use that word I don't like, saved. But what does it mean to live in faith? What does it mean to walk in the kingdom of God here and now? We've gone a little over today, and that's part of why my warning sign erupted a few minutes ago. Um, I think that's where we'll leave it. This idea of covenant and this idea of treaty between humankind and God being ratified only by God and being open, left open-ended on, on the human side of the equation, I think is an interesting one. And it's one that gets glossed over. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say is that it's interesting to think about God, Yahweh, using very human Oh, rituals and very human practices to make God's self known and to make God's intentions known.
to Abram. You know, this sacrifice business, I don't believe, occurs because God requires it. I believe if, well, let's just put it this way. If this story is quote-unquote true, I think God takes the opportunity to use a human practice that Abram understood and give it new meaning and endow it with some sort of theological significance in that moment that would have been understood by the original audience. But I'm not happy to think that God requires sacrifice. I don't think God requires sacrifice. And even, well, certainly my fundamentalist neighbor thinks that the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of the holy places requires the sacrifice of animals because God said so. And I just think that's ridiculous. Um, even N.T. Wright, it seems to think there's something to that. Um, and I've seen talks by him that are otherwise pure brilliance uh, on the business of atonement and so on. But anyway, that's the story we're sticking to for now. We will pick up next time um, with Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac, I suppose. But eventually we'll get to Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, and we will go from there. Thank you so much for listening today, for joining us. Sorry about the glitches and hiccups. Um, this is the Progressive Christian Podcast that is repainting a room in the Cape Cod down the street where the sidewalk ends. And so a couple unexpected moving pieces uh, sort of shook loose today. But thank you for being with us. Please do join us again. If you are so inclined, please do subscribe and, you know, maybe tell a friend. Have a good one. Bye.